Don't ask me what I feel about myself. Ask me what I know about God. Ask me what I know about his word. I just realized something. He wasn't sleeping on a pillow. He was sleeping on purpose. Something to say I think is important but not essential would be like the inerrancy of scripture. Um, oh, wow. And okay. I hold to the inerrancy of scripture. Okay. The title of my sermon tonight is Why Church Nurseries Are Unscriptural and Wrong. And so that's why I have a baby on my hip right here. There is a level of anointing that I believe is going to invade your homes, invade your sight, invade your senses. Um, that's going to, I literally feel that chains are going to break off of you. Do you think I'm wrong? Yeah. Yeah. Yay! So am I a bad guy for saying you're wrong? Yeah. I am? Yeah. <laughs> that's not fair. Hey, by the way, you are a slave. If you're not a slave of Christ, you're a slave of sin. You aren't free. Choose your master. Give us some men who know the truth. Well, hello and welcome back to Charology. I am your host, Ken Chipchase. It's a delight to have you here today as we begin this new year with podcasting, the year 2024. Looking forward to seeing what the Lord brings us this year and how we can continue to be a ministry and a benefit and a resource for God's church and his people. Uh, we hope that this is helpful for you as we continue to work through aspects of the chart and to think through, hey, you know, why are there particular items listed in certain columns in the chart? That's the whole reason why we're doing these chartology episodes is to provide the biblical reasoning from the very beginning, Jeremy and I desired to set out and say, okay, if we're going to create a chart, we have to have biblical reasons for assigning things to the column in which we are assigning them. And there's so many different opinions out there. There's people who disagree. There's people who disagree with the way we broke down our chart, but we wanted to have biblical reasons for why we did so. And so that's what we're ex examining. That's what we're exploring. And so far, I don't think it has been too controversial very much, uh, and it includes today. We're going through the nature of Christ today. And most individuals who had claimed to be believers in Christ, who had claimed the label of Christianity, would feel very much at home and very comfortable with what I'm going to articulate today. There may be a few fringe groups out there that might say, no, 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 I don't think that's quite right. And uh, to them, I say, well, repent <laughs> and believe in the revealed Lord Jesus Christ as he had revealed himself in the pages of Scripture. Uh, but in all seriousness, uh, these doctrines are, are very basic and affirmed by uh, the vast, vast majority of anyone who even cares to call themselves believers in Christ. So I don't expect to hear revolutionary, groundbreaking things. I'm going to summarize biblical truth and, and share some scripture passages that would lead us to understand that, yeah, this really is a primary doctrine. This really is something that belongs in the primary thing. And if you deny and reject this, you really are running afoul of the scriptures. You're running afoul of historic biblical Christianity, and that's a problem. So I just want to kind of set that table for us as we begin looking at this concept of the unique nature of Christ. One thing I want to say at the outset, you know, on our chart it does say unique nature of Christ, and I'm in the primary column for those who may not be able to view this online and maybe just listening. In the primary column there is the that top section that speaks of the gospel issues, right? These are these are things that pertain to the gospel of Christ itself, and within that we looked at the sinfulness of man already, and now we are looking at the unique nature of Christ. And we once had someone push back on that label, saying, "Oh, you know, there's there's an ancient heresy that that teaches that uh, when when God 
became flesh, and when, when Jesus Christ was born, that there was this unique mingling of natures that went on, where you've got the divine nature, and then you've got the, the human nature, and they've come and they've blended together to produce some new, unique nature that no one else in the history of the world has ever had. And I want to be very, very clear that that is not the intent of the chart to communicate that. That's not what we're going for. Uh, yes, I recognize that that is, uh, that is a heresy, that is an ancient thing, that's something that the Church has dealt with in the history of, of examining these doctrines and considering how we articulate these things, and that's not what we're after. Uh, we do believe that in one person does reside the true deity of God in bodily form, and then we also affirm that Jesus Christ is truly human. He has a human nature, and these these two natures come together in one person, but they are not like commingled or mixed together, creating some new fusion nature that is a result. That is that is not what we are seeking to teach. We're simply desiring to recognize that there is Christ in His deity, and there's Christ in His humanity. Two natures in one person. That's unique. No, nobody else has that. Nobody else has is, is truly God in everything that that means, and truly human in everything that means in one person. That doesn't exist in any other being. And so that's what we're trying to communicate when we say the unique nature of Christ, that this is, this is unique. This is not uh, something that anybody else experiences. So with that, I just want to highlight a few things. You know, we are coming into the year 2024, and of course, we just came out of the Christmas season, and everybody was focused on Christ, at least should have been. Uh, yeah, it's about Christ. It's about His incarnation. It's about this glorious reality that God could become flesh. That's an incredible thing, and it was good, and it was right for us to celebrate the incarnation of our Lord and Savior. Well, as we think about that, at my church, I preached two sermons for the Christmas season, and the first sermon was really focused on the humanity of Christ. Why is the humanity of Christ important? Why is that something that we need to embrace? And I went through several reasons why that is necessary from a theological perspective and from a practical perspective, and what that means for us, even as we seek to bring our prayers and petitions to the Lord, well, that's he had to be truly human for us to be able to do that. And I'm going to share more about that. And then the second sermon I did was focused on the deity of Christ and why that's important. And it's interesting within the context of the world in which we find ourselves today that I think most individuals who recognize the historicity of the person, Jesus Christ, they're going to be quite comfortable embracing Christ in his humanity, even those who are not believers, right? So you may have atheists or you may even have other faiths like uh, Jewish individuals or uh, people who are Muslim who look at Jesus and they say, well, maybe he was a, a prophet, he was a good person, or maybe he was a, a insurrectionist, maybe he was a zealot of some kind. And they recognize that Jesus, the man, existed. They're very comfortable accepting his humanity. They're not comfortable accepting his deity. They would deny his deity. They say, no, 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 he's not truly, truly God. Uh, so the Muslims would say he's a prophet, but he's not truly God. The Jews would say, well, maybe he was a zealot, a religious zealot, maybe he insurrectionist, he caused some trouble, but he's not the Messiah, he's not God. A Jehovah's Witness would say that he is less than God. They would affirm that he was he is a, a great being, but they would deny the full deity of Christ. They would say he's the first of the created beings, so that's that's a little bit different yet, but so there's different individuals that would deny the, the deity of Christ while still trying to hold on to his humanity. 
But I find it very interesting that in the history of the churches, the church was trying to wrestle through and identify, okay, we're talking about this, this concept. You've got true deity and true humanity coming together in one person. How does this work? How does this fit together? How do we think about this? And so they would try different things, try to communicate and try to explain, well, maybe it's kind of like this, and maybe it's kind of like that, and there were different pitfalls that individuals fell into along the way. So uh, there's the Ebionites who believed that Jesus was truly, uh, oh, I'm about to mess it up. He was truly human, but he was not truly God. Uh, they believed that uh, that at the baptism of Christ, they believed that God adopted Christ and that the Spirit came upon him and empowered him to do all these great things in ministry, but he wasn't truly God. But then there were other individuals that would really question his true humanity. So I think of the Docetists. Uh, the Docetists believed that Jesus only merely appeared to be human. There was, there, he truly was God in human, he truly was God in human appearance, Right, so so he was truly God, but he was less than truly human. He was he was appeared to be human without actually being the substance of humanity. So uh, maybe like an apparition or an appearance or something like that. They I don't know how they get around explaining the physical aspects of, Je of the life of Jesus, but uh, that was something that they affirmed that they believed. I mentioned earlier that there are other individuals who tried to understand this by saying there's a new nature that was mixed together. There are some that believe that well. Uh, the mind of Christ was the divine mind, but his body was human. But so everything, all of his thinking, all of his reasoning, every everything about him that was uh, that was of a immaterial nature that was divine, and everything of a physical nature that was human, and that's the extent of it. Others tried to say that, well, you know, there's this the human nature. And there's the divine nature, and when, when God became flesh, there was like this drop of human nature, but it gets just absorbed into the divine, and, and so it really kind of loses the humanity in the midst of the divinity. And there are different reasons why different individuals and different schools of thought were developed and tried to go these different directions. Most of them were trying to protect something very important. They're trying to protect the deity of Christ and say, yes, Jesus Christ truly was divine, but they had a wrongly ordered understanding of the physical world. So there are several individuals that believed that everything that's physical is inherently evil and sinful. Flesh is sinful. Everything of this world is sinful. It is, it is base. It is, it is evil. And why, how could it be that God, the divine creator, could take on that which is evil, that which is, that would be very problematic for their, for their uh, worldview and their philosophy. It's because they didn't have a rightly ordered understanding of the physical world and what God had made, and that what God made is actually really good. Yes, it is corrupted by sin. We see the curse of sin that is in the world, but the physical world itself isn't inherently evil, even with its corruption. And so they had this wrongly, uh, under, wrongly ordered understanding of the physical world itself, and so they were trying to protect the deity of Christ, but it came at the expense of his humanity. Others sought to affirm the true humanity of Christ, and we've gone through that and, and talked about how, how they did that, how they tried to preserve the humanity at the cost of his deity. Uh, they didn't believe that any mere human being could actually take on, that could, could actually be divine in any way, and so they would separate those two, and they would, they would emphasize the humanity of Christ without giving due weight to the deity of Christ. And what we want to say is no. 
we have to have a good and proper and right understanding of these things. We do need to hold these things in tension. We need to go where the Scripture takes us on this. And so let us take a few moments and go into a few Scriptures to consider the true deity of Christ and the true humanity of Christ. Mention that, you know, in the history of the church, there's just different struggles in different ways. I'm going to begin with just the humanity of Christ. Was Jesus truly human in everything that that means? And I'm just going to summarize a few points. First, well, he was physically born. We have the accounts. We just came through that Christmas season, the, the birth narratives, Matthew and Luke. They, they, they explain for us, yes, Jesus Christ was truly born in the flesh. He had a childhood. Passages of Scripture that talk about his childhood and, and his growing up and the, the experience in the temple. He experienced things of this world in a physical way. He experienced hunger. He fasted in the wilderness, and when he came out, he says he was hungry, and the angels ministered to him. He experienced thirst when he was up on the cross. He cried out, I thirst, and he was provided something to drink. Uh, when he met the woman at the well in John chapter 4, he asked her to give her a drink. He was thirsty. And so we have these different things that Jesus is experiencing the physical world the way we experience the physical world. Uh, the He got tired, right? He, in the boat. Uh, he slept in the boat while the storm was raging on. He, he rested, and we see him withdrawing for rest at different points in his ministry. So we see that Jesus in his humanity really does experience the world in a physical way. He eats, he drinks, he sleeps. All of these things are part of an expression of his true humanity. And then, of course, at the end of his life, he really and truly physically died upon that cross. And if you read the gospel narratives, there is no way to get around that. I understand that there are some individuals who try to say, well, he, he didn't truly, he didn't fully die. He didn't actually, actually die. He became very weak. He swooned, you know, those kinds of things. But when you read the gospel narratives and you understand what's going on medically, there's just no way anyone could survive what Jesus Christ endured upon the cross. So, yes, he truly, truly died. All of these things point to the true humanity of Christ, and there's several passages of Scripture that point to this as being a really important theological truth for us, that, that this is something that's important for us to embrace. And really, you know, we mentioned before about how, okay, when, when Scripture elevates something to a primary doctrine by giving it salvific weight, we need, to, we need to key in on that. We need to be alert to that. We need to be awake to that. And several passages of Scripture talk about that. So John writes in 1 John chapter 4, that if anyone does not confess the, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that's the spirit of the Antichrist. That's a big deal. <laughs> the reality of Christ, if someone does not confess that Christ came in the flesh, they deny his, his true humanity, that's the spirit of the Antichrist at work within them. He says this, he follows up on that in, in, in his second epistle, 2 John. And he writes about, if anyone does not abide in the teachings of Christ, he does not have the Father. This is a very significant and weighty thing for John to recognize that Jesus Christ really did come in the flesh. And so to deny the humanity of Christ is a very weighty thing. It reveals that, hey, that's, if, if you don't think he truly was here as a human, then you are not knowing the Lord. You do not know God. You do not know the Father. Uh, you have the spirit of the Antichrist at work within you. That's, that's, that's heavy. That's a big deal. The writers of the Hebrews, if you were to go through the book of Hebrews and see the different points where it talks about Christ and his humanity, it's very significant theologically and practically for us every single day. 
So I think of Hebrews chapter 2, where it says he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he could be our high priest. For Jesus to be our priest, he had to be truly human. And you think, well, what does a priest do? He mediates between the people and God. He's, he's the go-between. He's the one that stands between. The people of Israel would come to the priest. They would bring their offerings. They would bring their petitions, their prayers, their requests. They would bring them to the priest, and the priest would then take whatever their offering was and bring it to the Lord and offer it up as a burnt offering to the Lord. And Christ, because he is truly human, he is qualified to be a human representative before Almighty God. He had to be human. He had to be truly human. The writer of the Hebrews is going to expand upon that concept and, and really lean into this concept of Christ being our mediator, our intercessor. Right In chapter 7, he talks about how we have this intercessor. Jesus, he, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father on high where he intercedes for us. So he can do that because of his true humanity. And his true deity plays into that as well. But right now we're emphasizing and focusing on the humanity of Christ. So this is very important. This is important not just theologically, but very practically as well. Your prayers can be heard because Jesus was truly human. Think about that for a minute. I mean, really, really think about that, that reality that Jesus is truly human. And because that's true, I can have confidence that my prayers are heard when I lift my voice to the Lord, when I cry out to him in my prayers. I know that I have a mediator who stands between Almighty God and myself. It is the man, Christ Jesus, as Paul wrote to Timothy. That's incredible. Praise God. Praise God for that. We also know that when we go to him, not only does he hear, but he knows what we're going through. Again, the writer of the Hebrews talks about this in Hebrews chapter 4, that because he was truly human, because he experienced, he, the writer of the Hebrews says we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but was at all points tempted as we are and yet without sin. Jesus knows what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like to face the temptations of the world. Jesus was up on that mountain. The devil was tempting him with everything, every temptation that the devil had. He threw at Christ. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted, to know what it's like to have the bombardment of the devil come against him. So not only can we go before him and be confident that he hears us, that he hears our prayers, but we can also know that he can empathize with us. He can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was truly human and walked this earth physically. The humanity of Christ cannot be overlooked. It cannot be—the uh, importance of the humanity of Christ cannot be overstated. Well, that's the humanity of Christ. And there's other things that I'm sure that, that I could touch on as well, but we see the Scriptures very clearly place a very high weight of emphasis upon the humanity of Christ. Well, what about the deity of Christ? Sometimes people who reject the deity of Christ would try to say, well, you know, he never actually claimed to be God, and I would beg to differ with that. I do believe that he claimed to be God. Uh, we see this in various texts, uh, and I think the, some of the most clearest texts are going to be in the Gospel of John. We, if you look through John 5, John 10, John 8, uh, there's several texts in there that, that would lend itself to understanding that Jesus actually did claim to be God. The several I am statements before Abraham was, I am, claiming to be existing in the present tense back at Abraham's day. That's several hundred years, a couple thousand years prior. Like, that's, that's a 
that's a big deal, right? That's, uh, <laughs> we, cannot, we cannot say that Jesus did not claim to be God, and the, the people understood him, right? So as, as Jesus was making these I am statements, the, the Jews are picking up stones, and they're going to stone Jesus, and the text says that they did so because he was making himself out to be equal with God. And we're back. I had a little bit of a technical issue with my equipment, but I got it sorted out and ready to roll again. Leave. I was talking about the deity of Christ and how the 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 Jewish religious leaders understood what Jesus was saying as he was claiming to be God as they're picking up stones because he was making himself out to be equal with God. And we see Jesus at work with divine attributes. We see his power. We see his miracles. We see how he has knowledge of things that that he would not know if he was just merely just a human and nothing else. And of course, we know he rose again from the dead, and that was a divine thing. Several New Testament writers point to the significance of the deity of Christ. I think of Paul in Romans chapter 10, as he points to the deity of Christ and how that's a, really an essential aspect of understanding the gospel and understanding what we need to do in response to the gospel. Paul says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord— and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That aspect of confessing that he is Lord is a very significant and important confession. It's a recognition of the deity of Christ. The concept of Lord is a concept of deity. And so we have to, we have to embrace the deity of Christ. We have to understand uh, that Jesus Christ truly is God, and, and that's important theologically as well. Uh, so, I mentioned the theological importance of the deity of Christ when it comes to our interaction and prayers to the Lord. This is important. The, the deity of Christ is important as well. If Jesus was merely human, just like the rest of us, and did not have in any way a divine nature, then he would not have been perfect. And that is so critical when understanding the sacrificial nature of what Jesus did on the cross— this is where both his humanity and his deity are so critical. He had to be human so that he could be a human sacrifice. Hebrews says that the blood of goats and bulls could never take away sins. It had to be human. But if Jesus had his own sins to pay for, if he was not divine, if he was not perfect in his divinity, he would have had his own sins to pay for. He would have been a blemished sacrifice. He would not be a lamb without blemish and without spot. And the deity of Christ is what enables Christ to be a truly perfect, spotless, blameless sacrifice. In his humanity, he was truly human and could be our representative and our substitute on the cross. In his deity, he was all the perfections of Christ, all the perfections of the Godhead dwelt within the man Christ Jesus. And so he was our perfect sacrifice, our perfect substitute. Both the humanity and the deity of Christ are so critical for us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Scripture is very, very clear. Scripture does not leave this as a something that, you know, it's open to interpretation. It's very, very clear that Christ truly is human in everything that that means, and truly is divine in everything that that means. There's other passages of Scripture that talk about, in Him all the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. That's, that's the concept, that you have both deity and humanity together in one person. So that's the unique nature of Christ. This is why we have placed it in the primary column on the chart. 
as we move forward, uh, when I started to do chartology, I had it in my mind that I would go and do an episode on every single item on the chart. And there's part of me that would still love to do that as an exercise that could be very helpful and very healthy. However, I came to uh, came to a point of realizing that that is an awful lot of episodes. <laughs> I would be doing this for a very, very long time, which may be great because it's you know, almost bottomless content in a way. But I think there's other things that I'd like to give time to and like to give attention to. And so I, I think I'm going to abbreviate some of these episodes. I think I'm going to look at identifying what have been some of the more controversial uh, taxonomy. So we think about, okay, we're categorizing these doctrines. Which ones go in which column? Well, there are some that we, Jeremy and I, have placed in the primary column that has received pushback. And so I'd like to take the opportunity to say, well, this item seems to have been particularly controversial by placing it in the primary column. I would like to provide a biblical defense for why we believe that it belongs in that primary column. Likewise, when you come into the secondary realm, there are several doctrines in the secondary column that other individuals have looked at and said, hey, whoa, 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 you can't be relegating that to secondary doctrine. That's a primary issue. You got to bump that up there, pal. And so I'd like to provide a rationale for why we put it in the secondary column, etc. A lot of the chart, I think, is very intuitive, as, as we've talked about before. We intuitively do this kind of taxonomy, doing this kind of, uh, of theological triage. But the question always needs to come back to, what does the Bible say? Does the Bible put primary weight on this, either directly or implicitly? And then as you look at some of the other doctrines and think about why people go the different directions that they go, uh, we can explain and understand why they belong in the secondary column as well. So it always has to come back to the Bible, and so we want to provide that biblical defense and biblical rationale for why things are where they are. And so you can look forward to that in times ahead. I'm probably not going to hit every single point like I initially thought I would, uh, but I think that's probably going to be for the best. That means we can use our time most efficiently and uh, most beneficially. So that is that. That is the goal. Well, I do thank you so much for listening. Thank you for watching. And I just encourage you that if you have any feedback, you can always reach out, show at dotheology.com. Find us on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Ken Chipchase, K-E-N-N Chipchase. And yeah, look us up, get in contact. Happy to answer questions, happy to interact with you. And yeah, looking forward to what the year holds for us in the year 2024. And until we meet again, I encourage you to do theology for the glory of God. God bless.